0: Greetings folk, my name is Nick Engel, and today I'm going to be reading an introduction or um, a first chapter rather of a book entitled Socrates by Paul Johnson, a historian. The subtitle is A Man for Our Times and that's really relevant because Socrates had so much integrity and we really are in such desperate need in our times of integrity. Socrates lived 470 up until 399 BC, and let's read chapter 1. The title of the chapter is Living Man and Ventriloquist's Doll. There is always the spirit of the times. Even in deep antiquity, strong and almost identical impulses drove forward the elite's in societies separated by unbridged chasms of space, we cannot perhaps explain these coordinations, but we can profitably study them. Two and a half millennia ago, in the 5th century BC, in three advanced areas where literacy existed but was still in its infancy, three outstanding individuals echoed one another in insisting. That the distinction between their civilizations and the surrounding barbarism must be reinforced by systematic moral education. Confucius, a Latinized form of Kang Fu Tzu, meaning philosopher Kung, was born in Shantung, China, in 551 BC dying aged 73 in 479 BC. He came from a poor but distinguished patrician family whose descendants in the 76th generation still live in the district. He was a clever child and while still a schoolboy, conceived the notion of devoting his life to the moral and cultural transformation of society by a new kind of education. It was to stress all that was best in Chinese learning based on six arts, ritual, calligraphy, arithmetic and music with the physical skills of archery and charioteering. His pupils recorded him saying, at 15 I set my heart on learning, at 30 I firmly took my stand as a teacher. At forty, I had no delusions about education. At fifty, I felt the mandate of heaven to teach. At sixty, my ear was attuned to my pupils. At seventy, I followed heart's desire without overstepping the boundaries of right. It was Confucius' view, recorded by his pupils, in what are called the Analects, that education was the key to everything. A person should be so deep in study that he forgets to eat. So full of joy in learning, he ignores all practical worries, and so busy acquiring knowledge, he does not notice old age coming on. Education was the process whereby civilization and the minds and bodies of those privileged to enjoy it breathed and lived. Just a side note here our own Tata, Nelson Mandela, stressed education very much. Let's read on in Socrates. In, in, I mean, in Paul Johnson's book, Socrates. In 458 BC, the Hebrew priest and scribe. Ezra, returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. He had been born when Confucius was in his 60s and was the leading intellectual among the exiled Jewish community in Persia. So, Confucius was the first guy Paul Johnson speaks about and now we have Ezra, the second of the three men mentioned in in this section here. So Ezra brought with him an edited and freshly transcribed version of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Torah or Jewish Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. The word Torah came to mean the law, but its meaning originally, and certainly in Ezra's day, was instruction, teaching, and guidance. Ezra used the Torah as the basis for the re-foundation of the Jewish community in the Promised Land after the dislocation of the exile. It was his manual of instruction as the rest of his life was one of those rare occasions in history when education was used as the means to reform an entire society, morally, politically, and economically, and socially. I have made a note in my margin here saying, and most importantly, spiritually. When Ezra began his mission, Socrates was 12. He had been born in Athens then a city-state democracy in 470 B.C., nine years after Confucius's death. Whereas Ezra was of the priestly ruling elite, a direct descendant of Zadok, known in Hebrew history as the priest, the archetypal hierarch. And Confucius was an aristocrat and magistrate, Familiar with royal circles. Socrates was middle class. His father was a a mason and carver in stone. And his mother, he said, was a midwife. Socrates, thanks to his powerful intellect, and still more to the way he employed it, contrived to make himself classless the first classless person in history. Despite these different backgrounds, the three men were united by their passion for education, to which they devoted their lives. To all three, education involved learning, all that was most valuable in their societies. But beyond knowledge and education was a process whereby virtue, or the ability to lead a good life, was acquired. And to cap it all, Socrates was in no doubt that education by making one virtuous was the surest road to happiness. He was the first seer we know of who pondered deeply on what makes humans happy and how such a blessing can be acquired. Such a man is well worth knowing about and for 2,500 years the learned and intellectually enterprising In all countries have sought to know him. At a superficial level it is easy. Socrates is the quintessential philosopher, the seeker and conveyor of wisdom. But the more one penetrates from the superficial to the essence of the man, the more difficult it becomes. Socrates wrote nothing, nor did Confucius. But whereas Confucius was listened to attentively by scholars who then collaborated to produce an exact transcript of his teaching, rather as in the 20th century the pupils of Wittgenstein, another philosopher who wrote little, tried to remember and to set down every word from his life. Socrates had quite different experience. A quite different experience. Two remarkable men attached themselves to him and sought to immortalize him in words. Xenophon, a country gentleman, a traveler, adventurer, and a general, who, thanks to Socrates, whom he venerated, became an amateur student of philosophy. He loved writing, and, as countless generations of schoolchildren know, wrote a pure form of classical Greek, admirably adapted for the classroom. He wrote the Anabasis, the best book on a single military experience to come down to us from antiquity and among many other works the most thorough manual on training horses in the classical library as well as its companion volume on the use of cavalry. He also produced his memoirs a verbatim account of a dinner party in which Socrates is the central guest. All this is valuable, but it has to be said that Xenophon never comprehended and so could not reproduce the sheer power of Socrates' mind, its unique combination of steel, subtlety and frivolity. If if he were our sole authority for Socrates, we would never have learned to venerate him as the founder of philosophy, as an expert science. Our chief source who sought with all his astounding ability as a writer and thinker to perpetuate the work of Socrates was his pupil Plato. Plato was a genius which is both our boundless delight and our misfortune. Being taught by Socrates was the central event of his life and after his master's death he spent much of his remaining time recording what he had said in a series of dialogues or conversations. More than a score have survived, plus two companion documents. Socrates' verbatim defense when on trial for his life and a record of his last hours before his death sentence was carried out. These two documents, plus the earliest dialogues, are authentic records of. Socrates, the man, the historical seer at work. However, Plato was not only a genius, but one of a particular kind. He was a don, an academic. The very first academic, in fact. For after Socrates' death, he founded in a suburban park in Athens a study place, we would call it a think tank, called the Academy from which the profession takes its name it was the earliest university and its prize alumnus who came in plato's classes who came to plato's classes when he was 17 was aristotle third of the sturdy tripod of masters on which the entire corpus of western philosophy rests aristotle went on to found his own university Lyceum in Athens as companion and rival to Plato's. So that the characteristic pattern of academic life, competitive animosity, was well established before the end of the fourth century BC. When writing his documents on Socrates's end and his own early dialogues, Plato was still innocent enough that that is still sufficiently enraptured by Socrates' thinking and method to reproduce both accurately. They form a trustworthy record of Socrates' enormous and vital contribution to the best way of using our mind to reach truth. But as Plato began to play his new role as academic, as the vesture of the don, the metaphorical cap and gown, settled comfortably on his head and shoulders. He underwent a transformation. To his persona as the first academic, he added or superimposed the complementary persona of the first intellectual, by which I mean someone who thinks ideas matter more than people. That is an excellent point, Mr. Paul Johnson. Somebody once said, Some people love people and use money. Other people use people and love money. And I think the same can be applied here to ideas. Some people love ideas more than people and some people love people more than ideas. I think we must never forget that people are God's most prized Creation. Let's pray a moment. Father I just thank you for your anointing. I thank you that you made us and you created us precious. Thank you that you are precious Lord. And I just pray for myself and any listener that we would always prize you and people above money and intellect and ideas or anything else. Open our eyes. To behold and to understand truth, Lord, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. let's read on as an intellectual he socrates I mean Plato began to formulate his own ideas as an academic, he quickly merged them into a system, and as a teacher, he used Socrates to spread and perpetuate it. In his earlier writings, Plato presented Socrates as a living, breathing, thinking person, a real man. But as Plato's ideas took shape, demanding propagation, poor Socrates, whose actual death Plato had so lamented, was killed a second time, so that he became a mere wooden man, a ventriloquist's doll, to voice not uh, not his own philosophy, but Plato's. Being an intellectual, Plato thought that to spread his own ideas was far more important than to preserve Socrates as a historic, integrated human being. Using Socrates as an articulate doll was, he saw, the easiest way to bring about this philosophical dispersal. So the act of transforming a living historical thinker into a mindless speaking doll the murder and quasi-diabolical possession of a famous brain became in Plato's eyes a positive virtue. That is the only charitable way of describing one of the most unscrupulous acts in intellectual history. Thus Plato, with no doubt the best intentions, created like Frankenstein, an artificial monster philosopher, It is particularly damaging to our understanding of Socrates in that the line of demarcation in Plato's writings between the real Socrates and the monster is unclear. It has been argued about for centuries without any universally accepted result, and anyone who writes on the subject must make up their own mind as I have done in this account. Happily we have other sources independent of Plato and Xenophon which give us bits of information about Socrates. His his contemporary, the comic dramatist Aristophanes, who also seems to have been a friend, but then in showbiz, is there such a thing as friendship, wrote a savagely hostile play about him called Clouds. There is an account of Socrates by Diogenes Laertius written 700 years later but using sources since lost to us there are anecdotes apercus recorded sayings and snippets of information in the works of many classical and early medieval writers from cicero cicero and seneca plutarch and lucian to St. Augustine and Tertullian and many others who had access to libraries that were totally destroyed in the Dark Ages. These bits and pieces help us to flesh out or correct the primary material Plato and Xenophon provide, but we always have to bear in mind the low-regard classical and still more, post-classical writers had for truth. Their habitual inaccuracy, even when trying to be honest, their lack of impartiality, historicity or plausibility, or even one feels common sense, and the slovenly way books were written, copied and preserved. Before the coming of the codex or book proper, Writing was done on papyrus scrolls about 33 feet or 10 meters long. A roll might contain a book of Thucydides or two of Homer. But there was no uniformity and scribes wrote for other scribes, not for the reader. They were strongly trade unionized in every epoch and era. There was no attempt to stick to a specific number of letters to a line or lines to a column. Punctuation did not exist, nor capital letters, nor regular spacing between words. And a short stroke under a line known as a paragraphos was the only indication of a change of subject, pause or in plays and dialogues Very important for Plato's texts involving Socrates, a change of speaker, whose name irritatingly was hardly ever given. All these factors and many other slovenly habits increased the large number of textual errors inevitable in hand copying. And as the manuscript chain stretched over centuries, even millennia, an incorrupt text became an impossibility. From the Renaissance onward, the prime task of generations of scholars until our own day has been to produce good texts. Even so, we have absolutely no guarantee that what we read of Socrates' sayings were Plato's transcriptions of them, as set down 2,450 years ago. And all this is in addition to the loss of manuscripts in their entirety or in part. Until Socrates' time, no one who speculated about the cosmos and its inhabitants has been fortunate enough to have their conclusions survive. The works of pre-Socratic philosophers, as they are called, are quite literally fragments. Nonetheless, Socrates himself is known to us as a man and thinker as a hugely real living and enjoyable human being let us meet him